going on, podcasting world? Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. I'm Mike Corvino. With me as always, Cole Swanson. And today we are joined by a very special guest, a first of its kind, if you will, um, anesthesiologist, uh, Dr. David. Um, tell me your last name again if you pronounce it. I already botched it first, second end. Convasar. Convasar. See, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna delete that and restart. I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> Doctor Convasar is joining us today, um, all the way from New Jersey. So I appreciate you being with us, man. Thank you so much. Wow, oh, thank you guys. I'm super excited. So uh, give us some insight into you know your background. How did you you know what's your uh, you know coming of age story? How did you become go into medicine? How did you pick anesthesiology? All that fun stuff. Nice. So uh, it, I'd like to say it started. Back when I was a child, but reality is it was, it was the Scrubs television show. I watched that, and I was like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> but uh, no, when I was younger, I, I really liked uh, – I personally had you know, I have asthma. I had some medical issues when I was younger. Uh, so in and out of hospitals, I kind of saw what it was like, but it wasn't one of those someone got sick, and I was like, oh, I want to be a doctor and help people. I just kind of liked the environment when I was younger, and I proceeded through. Um, I'm from South Jersey outside of Philly. So I did some volunteer work down at Cooper hospital, which is a you know, good sized trauma hospital in Camden and kind of got to see what they do there. And actually, as it turns out, when I was 14, uh, not a real trauma, but enough that it wound me up in the trauma center. We were playing softball. Me and another kid ran into each other, wound up with a lacerated spleen and pancreas. Oh. I was laying in a hospital bed in the trauma bay and like, 10 feet away from me, they were digging bullets out of somebody. And it was, you know, it, it might seem like a fake story, but 110% happened. Uh, the only person to ever be hospitalized from a softball game. From a football <laughs> game rather. Uh, and after that, I worked with the trauma team there over the summer um, to try to get involved shadowing. Went to college, decided I was going to do trauma surgery. Started going back and doing research with the trauma team there. So that was really great. And then... Uh, Finally, um, went from college to medical school, Did started my clinical rotations, was like, I'm going to be a trauma surgeon, it's going to be great. Did my first surgery rotation and hated everything about it. I don't know if you guys have ever retracted uh, like a panis <laughs> for three hours, but there's very few things, you know, like that. And I was like, I'm not for me. So but, not as fun as you thought? No, not as fun as I thought. Uh and so I ended up meeting some of the anesthesiologists, seeing kind of the things that they did. Um, some of them talked to me about the kind of smaller procedures that they do, some of the hands-on stuff they get to do. And, and it seemed like a really cool thing. And it was interesting to me because they had a very different relationship with the patient than I think other practices had. So I did my first rotation and realized that I got to wear scrubs every day, didn't have to go to clinic, didn't have to write notes, and really didn't have to round. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> you know, nice. A lot of the uh, appreciation came afterwards. That's cool. So um, you're in. Are you you're in residency now? Or you just finished. I'm I'm in my fourth of four years, and then I'll be doing my uh, dual fellowship in open heart cardiac anesthesia, and then a year of critical care. So I'll be in the ICU. Wow. Okay. Awesome. So you have you got two more years left after this year of general anesthesia, right? Correct. So, um, what, how, how does that work as far as, and, and this is something that I think a lot of people who are not in that world, don't, we kind of just think of anesthesiologists, just, oh, just every procedure you're helping with. So is there, what's the difference between, um, you know, critical care versus like just an outpatient procedure? Like how, what's the training difference? Sure. So, um, first I do want to be clear and separate that critical care, uh, the first intensivists 
historically ever uh, were actually anesthesiologists. Uh, it started back in, I think it was Copenhagen, um, somewhere in, in Europe uh, during the polio epidemic where they couldn't keep all these patients breathing for themselves. And so the question was, could they use the positive pressure ventilation that they use in the operating room uh, to kind of keep these polio patients breathing? And when they started doing that, the anesthesiologists at the times were the ones that managed the vented patients, the patients, you know, on the positive pressure. And so that was where the first ICUs came about. And so the first anesthesiologists, or I'm sorry, the first intensivists were, or ICU docs were actually anesthesiologists. And so at this point, if you want to be a, a critical care physician, um, I assume if you guys have rounded in the ICU, um, it comes in lots of different flavors. You can go through your pulmonary critical care for medicine, straight critical care through medicine, surgical critical care, usually through trauma, ED. Anesthesia is just another way that you could go and practice as an intensivist. And so I'll be doing one-year fellowship so that I can go and be an ICU attending. Uh, and then that is completely separate from the actual operating room. Hmm. So when people do work in the ICU, it's usually a week in the ICU, and then they go back to their time in the OR. Uh, kind of mix around like that. That's cool. As for, it's nice because it kind of uh, it can break the monotony, uh, sometimes being in the operating room for day and day and day, uh, to go and kind of change things up a little bit, but also get into a position where you're doing teamwork-based um, medicine as opposed to necessarily one-on-one. -on -one. And you don't forget your basic medicine principles. And in, in the operating room, it's very high acuity. Even if a, a healthy patient, you're talking about someone who's been put to sleep, paralyzed, on a ventilator, being, you know, in legal terms, I guess, battered, you know, opened up and organs being touched and taken out and reassembled and such. So even a normal patient is, is critical to going to the ICU where um, you're kind of managing more long-term things like patients' diabetes issues, patients' hypertension issues, um, and other issues that I don't really manage on a day-to-day. -day. Yeah, so, that's very cool. So what, what do you like better? Um, you have a preference as of now, like working more in that intensive care unit or the OR. Do you have one that like, if you're and you're on your week of the OR or whatever, you like, ah, oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> or is it like you enjoy both of them? How's that work? So I, I really do love both of them. And it's part of why uh, my career goal is to end up basically splitting my time or doing three weeks in one week in the three weeks in the operating room, one in the ICU. Um, but it's they're very, very different. And I guess part of why I'm doing a cardiothoracic fellowship as well is that I really love the open heart cases um, because it's a very different world when you do open heart uh, between the surgical team, the anesthesia team, the bypass team. Um, you know, we're trained to do echo just like the cardiologists are. So we actually do the intraoperative echo. We guide a lot of the cannulations um, and then run the... Uh, pacemaker when patients come off of bypass to get their heart started again. Uh, a lot of very interesting physiology, pharmacology, uh, plus all the procedures. Every patient that comes in, if they're getting a valve, uh, sometimes they get two central lines placed in the neck, your arterial lines, um, even for your more basic uh, cardiac procedures, uh, AFib ablations and stuff, there's still a lot of very uh, intense physiology going on. It's super uh, interesting. So I, I wouldn't say that I have a preference. Uh, I definitely think that um, I like the opportunity to make my career what I've 
what I wanted it. So if it comes to a time where, you know, I just, I can't round in the ICU anymore, I don't have it in me, I can always stick to the operating room or vice versa, or I could just continue with both. So as far as your day-to-day in the OR, is it like you rolling in the morning, see what patients you have, prep for that, or do you kind of know what your week is going to look like and what procedures you're doing throughout the week sure. and kind of prep for it that way? So as a resident, it depends. Um, if you are on a certain rotation, you know, you have a general idea of what kind of cases you're going to be doing. Um, and it's doing your due diligence usually the night before is chart checking your patients, calling your attending the night before and having a conversation on what your plan is for any one of them. Um, sometimes you're going to have very basic cases where it's like, all right, I'm doing three lap coles today. Everyone's healthy. It's not going to be an issue. And some days you're going to say, okay, well, we're doing this neurospine case on Tiva total intravenous anesthesia with neuromonitoring on a severe vascular path. And mm. it's a very different conversation to be had. Right. That's cool, man. I, I, that's, in, that's the part that I, I, I'm glad I get, we get to talk to you because, you know, that's something that I, you know, even me, you know, doing clinical pharmacy and whatnot, don't get to see, I don't work inpatient. So it's cool to see the different roles that you guys have. Um, sure. I also want to point out just for those of you watching the video version, I love the fact that you have your diplomas and your, your doctorate <laughs> and stuff in the, in the background with your snapbacks right behind <laughs> it. That's like the best. I love it. Nice. You <laughs> might be it. my new favorite person. <laughs> uh, listen, I hope we keep in touch after this. this is oh, great. of course, man, for sure. That's great. I just noticed as you're talking, I was like, my man. <laughs> I still haven't gotten my diploma framed, actually. I don't think I have it's either, sitting actually. Sitting in a closet, I don't know. sadly. Doctors these days, pharmacists, medical professionals, nurses, it's it's a very different world than the old, like, white coat days where, right. you know, people are very... No, it's awesome, man. I love it. That's, that's what I, I'm, I'm glad it's kind of moving into that transition because I think people have like this, uh, this idea, this stigma about what a, an MD or whoever is supposed to look like. And I'm like, yeah, it's not really what I look like, but I'm just kidding. When I walked in, I just got, you know, part of my arm done. I still have another oh, that's awesome. six hours to go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would never uh, 30 years ago think like, oh yeah, that's my doctor. The guy with yeah, the, you got the half the sleeve. sleeve. Yeah. yeah, dude. So I just I actually just uh, put it something on Twitter about um, there's some uh, there's an attending somewhere that's got, cut, got both of her sleeves done um, and some of the, and some of her neck done and stuff. And she it, or the in Australia. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, it was put out in there uh, saying that you know they're trying to change the the status the status quo or the the stigma behind like what a physician's sure. supposed to look like. I love it. Um, it actually got more hits than anything I posted like the rest, <laughs> last couple of weeks. I was like, all right. What does that say about Super you? Interesting stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Very changing culture, you know. Uh, it's good, man. I'm, I'm glad. Um, so when you you were mentioning some of the procedures and stuff like that, um, how? From an anesthesiology standpoint, how are you like? Is are you assisting the surgeon? Are you doing the procedure? How does that work? So it all depends on what's being done. In no way are we participating in the surgery or the procedure itself. Um, it depends on what's happening. So as for our procedures, they're usually either interventional, they're pre-surgical, intrasurgical, or post-surgical. So all of our intubations is an invasive procedure. Arterial line placement, invasive procedure. Our, uh, central line placement all done during the surgery, or, or pre-surgical rather. And if you have to do an emergency, um, so good example of that is patients who are having C-sections. Um, if they find that the patient has an accreta and they have uncontrolled bleeding and they have to do an emergent hysterectomy, you're talking about an intraoperative emergent intubation, A-line placement, sometimes a cortis or, or um, very large bore central line IVs or, or peripheral IVs. Um, and it can be done at different times. Then if you're talking about regional blocks, so uh, your 
femoral blocks or sciatic blocks for lower extremities, things like that. They can be done pre-surgically such that the patient can actually have the operation under just a little bit of Versed and do the procedure because they don't feel the leg or post-operative for pain control. Uh, in the ICU, if anyone who plans on going to that, you're talking about your bedside tracheostomy tubes, your bedside uh, chest tubes. So it all varies. We're not directly involved in whatever the patient is booked in the operating room for, but whatever comes up that needs to be managed acutely, we do. That's cool. As far as um, nurse anesthetists uh, and their like scope and their role in the OR with you and in relation to anesthesiologists, how, do, how does that look? And do they function kind of like a PA to a doctor in the OR or do they do things more independently depending on the procedure? How does that work? Sure. Um, so I'm going to speak around this very carefully because I know it's a, there's always, or not always, but there's sometimes there's tension between the two groups. And I, I want to be very clear saying up front that I love the nurse anesthetists that I work with. They have taught me so much, especially some of them have been doing this for 30 years. Um, and the way it works, at least uh, where I practice, is that we have our attendings, and our attendings cover both nurse anesthetist rooms and resident rooms. So I will be in a room, and the attending will be the attending of record for me, and then they'll also either have another resident, or they'll have a couple of nurse anesthetists, or they'll just have nurse anesthetists. And you have one overseeing attending, uh, at least in New Jersey, and they kind of supervise the same way an emergency room attending would have a number of PAs or nurse practitioners that would see patients and kind of be the oversight to uh, everything. Um, at the end of the day, nurse anesthetists and residents, at least where I am, kind of operate in the same fashion. Um, you know, we both kind of answer to a to a higher power, and uh, then we each have our own rooms. And usually, our attendings will monitor a couple different rooms, so they'll bounce between all of them. Interesting. Okay. Because obviously the training is, I would presume, way different. I mean, it, going an MD route versus a nurse anesthetist school after nursing school. As, yeah. as much as I'd like to be able to comment it because I haven't gone through it, I don't know. Yeah. But I know that you go into nursing school and then you have to practice, I think, in the ICU for a certain amount of time. Right. Yeah. Then you go back to school specifically for nurse anesthetists. Then you have clinicals. So it's an extremely rigorous route gotcha. the same way. Um, and you know, a lot of them have are, are exceptional. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. No, and that's cool. Cause I, I think just like you said, and I like how you kind of preface it by saying like, I want to get this out of it. Cause there's a lot, there's sometimes some, some, some bad blood. I, I think there's, it's very quick for a lot of people, you know, in regardless of what your specialty is to just kind of, there's a, I guess there's a lot of ego in medicine is what I'm trying to say. Oh, you get very, very defensive. Um, and, I think at the end of the day, it's about patients. Yeah. And really as medicine is becoming more algorithmic, you know, we have up to date, we have very definitive guidelines for things. Uh, it makes it so that really many different levels of, of training can get the same um, end goal done. And, you know, I think the reality is you need to put your ego aside in medicine because it's, it's not about you, um, which can be very hard for some people, especially people who went to medical school who are sometimes type A personalities who are, who are very, uh, you know, 
I just like to chill. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Do, do you, I mean, obviously going through that process, you've met a lot of those people. I mean, we had a lot of them with, you know, pharmacy school, um, where it's like, I'm like, man, how, you, you've got to be so stressed all the time. We as uptight as some of these people seem. So I'm sure you saw plenty of those type of people who would be like the, the quote unquote standard physician or whatever. hundred percent. hundred percent. Do you feel like, you know, your personality kind of helped you, um, you know, be successful so far in your career. And like, you feel like that's that laid back personality has really helped along the way. I'd like to hope so. Um, at the end of the day, you have lots of people who are very good who don't have the same personality as me, but my feeling has always been two things. One in the operating room, um, if I'm freaking out, then that means something very bad might be happening because if I can't, if the patient is desaturating and I can't do anything about it, then nobody else in the room is going to be able to do anything about it. Uh, and so I think my personality of being a little bit calm, collected, very, uh, level-headed from, you know, years of wrestling in high school and, and, uh, briefly on into college is that, you know, when the spotlight's on, sometimes you have to be, you know, kind of the team leader. Mm -hmm. Um, if it is the case, uh, same thing in the ICU, if, if someone's decompensating acutely being able to recognize. And so I think because I'm a relatively calm person, uh, I think also it comes with how much you know, or how much you think, you know, people who, uh, at least anecdotally, who really know their algorithms, really know uh, what they're doing, um, tend to be not always, but sometimes calmer because they they know exactly what they need to do. And if it doesn't work, or if it does work, it, there's if you did everything correctly, then what else could you do? Yeah. yeah. So man, you mentioned. So I gotta ask now. This is totally off topic, but you mentioned wrestling. So, um, do you have, uh, do you get your wrestling years going, huh? Oh, look at cauliflower here. <laughs> so I got, you can't see mine in this. It's very, very little. And the reason is that I came home. I told my mom it's, it happened. I finally have it. And she grabbed me by the arm and she pulled me outside and she's like, we're going to get that drained right now. Uh... She lost her mind. <laughs> So unfortunately, I had a needle in mine immediately after it happened. That's funny. So I uh, I got so I got mine later on, and like so I thought I got um, a contract to fight professional MMA th the same week that I got into pharmacy school, and I was like, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so uh, I, I my mom wasn't in charge of my ears at that point, so I let mine go. <laughs> I was seventeen. My mom's like, no, you live in this house. Yeah. <laughs> My my dad actually asked me recently if I was gonna have plastic surgery to like get it fixed. I was like, Are you kidding it's me? A badge of honor. You know how you hard I worked. For, you know how hard I worked for these years. <laughs> but that's cool, man. So I do. I'll, I'll ask one more thing on the wrestling thing. Everybody else who listens, like God, he always brings this up. <laughs> but um, do you feel like uh, you feel like the wrestling and that kind of uh, obviously the cutting weight and all that horrible stuff that goes along with that's that amazing sport um, prepared you for medical school? Mentally? Yeah, so uh, it actually was what I ended up writing about in my personal statement for residency. And it's cheesy. People ever, everyone writes about sports. Everyone writes about their, you know, sick grandmother or something. And unfortunately, it's the reality of anecdotes for, for um, you know, usually papers for things like that. But, you know, I ended up going to a field that is largely independent and there's nobody else uh, to blame necessarily if something happens, if something goes wrong, just like, you know, on a wrestling mat, you know, I can't look at a goalie that, that missed an easy block. I can't look at somebody that missed a shot, uh, in a game game situation. And so I think for me, having pursued something that is being in the operating room is very 
overall team dependent, but there's nobody there that's really holding my hand while I do my intubations, my procedures, my, you know, intraoperative management of a patient. And so I think having had a mindset of a more independent athlete and over a long period of time, uh, definitely put me in a place for that. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. I, I've had some people ask me, uh, cause I'm the same way personality wise. I get, I'm pretty laid back. I don't get stressed too often. I've had people ask me, you know, like, well, how, you know, how do you manage stress? How do you, I'm like, well, every situation I'm in, it's stressful or something at work happened, or I have to do all this different things, whatever. I'm like, you know, what's way worse cutting 20 pounds of weight <laughs> in a day to make weight for a stupid fight. I'm like, any time I'm like, that's have you ever jump roped in plastic. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. It, that, I promise you that's worse. <laughs> So yeah, Look, I haven't eaten in three days. Yeah, I don't Talk remember what that. water tastes like. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's funny, man. That's cool. So you said that I was like, that makes way more sense now. Uh, that's cool. So um, I know you know one of the uh, the things that people will say, like joking on anesthesiologists, is oh, you guys have to sit there and play on your cell phones while the other people <laughs> take care. Um, you know, describe like what you're doing monitoring during the procedure, because obviously that's not true. And like you said, if something goes wrong, it's on you. Um, sure. you know, it's so someone starts deciding you, everybody's looking at you to figure out what's going on. And I've, I've been like, when I was in school and I did some of my, like my sticky rotations, I remember watching a code happen in the middle of a procedure and everybody, all eyes went to the anesthesiologist and he was just calm and collected, walked over and handled it. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. So a hundred percent, 95% is just kind of, you know, making sure everything it's, it's, uh, flying a plane. You do the takeoff, you do the landing, and you kind of hope that there's no turbulence during it. Um, and the problem is when there is turbulence, that's kind of uh, an issue. Or if a plane were to skid when it's landing, you know, that's that's very seldom a good thing. And so um, I will 100% say that if you're doing general lap coles, lap appies, um, some very easy cases with otherwise healthy people, you shouldn't ever let your guard down because there's always, with any kind of pharmacology, as you guys know, the possibility for an adverse reaction or uh, anything really to happen. So you always have to be ready. But uh, for those cases, sometimes we are simply just taking off, setting up for the next case, gallbladders out, and you're ready to uh, wake the patient up again. There are other days, like I said, when you're in the cardiac room and you're doing the intraoperative echo while they're putting the, the new valve in. Um, if you're doing TIVA, you're talking about running propofol drips, patients can't be paralyzed, so it messes with the neuromonitoring. Uh, so you're talking about running any number of three to five different drips, all of which remifentanil, propofol will all drop your blood pressure. Plus, you can't paralyze them, so you hope that they don't move while they're prone and they're you know belly down, having rods put in their spine. And so the the day to day for a regular case might be very normal. Go to sleep, set up for the next case, turn over, wake them up, get ready for the next one. Other days you might be doing. 14-hour craniotomies, in which case I'll be very honest, those days are sometimes a bit harder than the other ones because I can only read so much of my textbook uh, before yeah, you're going I crazy. need to find something else to do, you know, start pacing around the operating room and doing calf raises, I guess. <laughs> uh, so the, the day-to-day uh, is very, very dependent on your caseload, on what you're on, what your rotation you're on. Uh, again, if you're on like your regional rotation, you're basically doing pre-op and post-operative blocks. You don't see the operating room. Um, if you're on pain, chronic pain rotation, and you are going to clinic and just seeing your patients that are getting injections done, um, you're either doing the injections or following up in the clinic. Uh, if you're on OB, C-section, C-section, epidural, epidural, 
So it's uh, it's it's very interesting the variety that we get to kind of deal with on a day to day. Yeah, it's crazy. They can be, be so simple and calm, and then you have like crazy. I mean, I mean what I would consider crazy acuity uh, patients that that be pretty high stress for however long that takes number of it's, hours. It's it could be a blink of an eye that uh, somebody all of a sudden you know I've seen or heard of you know. Uh, a clamp comes undone from the aorta and you went from a normal operation to massive transfusion in seconds. Um, Patients who come in GSWs who are bleeding chest down, you're talking about, you know, four different anesthesia providers in the room. Someone's doing the intubation. Someone's doing the A-line. Someone's bronching them to put a bronchial blocker in. Someone's trying to get a central line somewhere. You know, uh, it's very, very, uh, very, very different depending on what you're on, what you're doing on a day-to-day, what kind of hospital you're in, what kind of patients you see. So it's very, very cool. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, so you don't like your job at all then, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty lame, sounds like. Uh, it's funny that you bring up that uh, you know, I'm talking to a pharmacist because it's one of the people that we seldomly, very, uh, very seldomly interact with. And going from the operating room to the ICU, in the operating room, there's no one between me and the patient. There's no pharmacist to check my order. There's no epic to make sure that I'm not giving something contraindicated with something else. There's no nurse to make sure that I'm giving the appropriate dose or administer it. And so what ends up happening is we become very like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to give hundred of fentanyl and there's not going to be any questions because I'm just going to do it. And then I go to the ICU and I'm like, okay, we need to put a line in and we need his blood pressure up a little bit. And someone just give me like a hundred CCs of, or a hundred mics of phenylephrine. And they're like, you have to order a bag. And someone has to send, I was like, this is, this is infuriating. <laughs> uh, but it's a very unique practice because, because of that, because there is no, no in between. Uh, but I can't tell you how unbelievably um, important the ICU pharmacists that I've worked with, a couple of them, adjusting for creatinine clearance in our patients that are, you know, dying in the ICU, making sure that we're giving the appropriate dosage. I still can't deal with the creatinine clearance and how many times a day to dose cefepime. Is it one gram? Is it two grams? Q24, Q48. I can't. I can't deal with it. So I'm like, thank God you guys are here. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Man, so so you mentioned um, you you started to talk about like dealing with like w- whether you're given like propofol versus you know some of the neuroblocking agents. Can you walk us through a little bit of that for like the students and stuff listening who are interested in this kind of stuff? Can you kind of walk us through some of the like when would you use one of those agents and how like there's obviously several different types of neuroblocking agents. So how do you pick? Um, is you just close your eyes and pick one or <laughs> give us some Sometimes. give us some science by, behind Sometimes, it? Sometimes yes. <laughs> uh, so. I, I, I'd like to hope that no matter who we are, where we are, we always make sure our patient is uh, nice and asleep and uh, before we give any type of neuromuscular blockade because uh, you know, nobody wants to be paralyzed and awake. That being said, um, your induction agent, you know, depending on what kind of case you're doing, uh, changes things and the level of sedation of the patient at baseline. So, for example, propofol is used predominantly it's one of the World Health Organization's most important medications. It's inexpensive, um, and it has some side effects, which are not great. It can decrease your blood pressure by vasodilation. It's a direct myocardial depressant, and that might be okay for most people because we can always buffer that. We can always give a little bit of pressure. We can always do something about that. Um, we tend to go usually with our general cases with rocuronium as our paralytic, um, but from a pharmacologic standpoint, vecuronium is also very, very good. Um, 
there was atricurium and cisatricurium, which are both eliminated by Hoffman elimination in the blood. So, you know, patients who maybe don't have such good liver function, such good kidney function, who need to get rid of it, but won't if they're not don't have good function, um, you know, we kind of tailor it to that. So it all depends on the profile of the patient themselves, um, kind of what kind of the cases we're doing. Like I said, in our in some of our neuro cases where we have to monitor neurofunction, we don't give any paralytic. The patient is just very, very heavily sedated, uh, and we cross our fingers. Uh, so the selection, uh, unfortunately, I, I, and I'm doing my best to answer because it's kind of a very broad topic, yeah. is it's... I would say 90% of the time, maybe that's a little high, 80% of the time, patient comes into the room, they get a little bit of Versed, um, depending on their age, to help them relax, maybe forget going to the operating room. Uh, then we give them fentanyl. Uh, people think it's for pain. Um, people think that intubation is painful. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever stuck your fingers in your throat to vomit, maybe you because of wrestling, uh, but it actually doesn't hurt. It's just very, very stimulating sympathetically. And one thing that we want to make sure when we put patients to sleep, intubate them, get ready for surgery is to not change their heart rate, not increase their blood pressure. We want it to be as smooth as possible. So fentanyl is a very potent sympatholytic. And so we want to make sure that gets into the system beforehand. Um, propofol or atomidate, which is really good for um, maintaining hemodynamic stability because it really doesn't drop your pressure, but has other poor side effect profiles. Um, then we, depending on if they're very large, if they have large necks, if we think they're going to be a difficult airway, might have to be intubated using sucks because succinylcholine, uh, as you guys might know, only lasts a couple of minutes, which means that if we can't intubate them for any emergent reason, they'll start breathing again by themselves. Uh, so it's very patient to patient dependent, whereas rock, you're committing yourself to you know, 30, 40 minutes of, of paralysis. And there are even patients that we intubate completely awake, which I hope to be doing in like two weeks time hmm. where, uh, you know, we use topical anesthetics to basically numb the airway, the gag reflex, everything in the mouth and uh, possibly the nose in order to put a breathing tube while the patient is a hundred percent awake because, there is some risk of putting them to sleep and then not breathing. So I know that was a long answer to a you know, something possibly a little bit simpler, but 80% of the time, rock, probe, fentanyl, versed, then some reversal agents at the end. Uh, but there's always going to be, depending on the practitioner, and that's part of what's beautiful about anesthesia is 20 ways to skin a cat. There's no real algorithm to doing any one case. Some people might use... 500 of the fentanyl to go to sleep, and they do that in cardiac cases. Some people um, will mix ketamine and propofol. It's it's really nice that you can kind of make your practice what you want. What would be uh, some of the benefits to in that, like you said, mixing? Because I've seen where they'll they'll use uh, the the ketamine and things like that as parts for some procedures, not for others. What would be a reason for adding on the ketamine to propofol? Um, or, or using maybe even ketamine instead of fentanyl or something like that for somebody with pain. I mean, what, what, how do you kind of differentiate that? How do you use ketamine? So um, it's very user dependent. There's a lot of people, ketamine is kind of like the, I like to think that a large portion of people, it's kind of like the boogeyman. They get very afraid of using it because it's ketamine. Um, and a lot of people weren't trained necessarily with it, um, but it's great for pain. Uh, it's the closest thing to what we call a perfect anesthetic. Uh, in that it is quick onset, quick offset, um, it's titratable, 
which has to do with that. It's both anesthetic and hypnotic and analgesic. So it puts you to sleep and deals with pain. Um, and it's cheap to make, lots of things. So really great drug. Uh, and it also has some very beneficial side effects like bronchodilation. So you'll see it a lot in kids that are in having asthma attacks or even in adults. Some people will use it as an intraoperative drip because it actually has been shown to decrease postoperative uh, narcotic use and intraoperative narcotic use. Now, the unfortunate part about ketamine, two unfortunate parts, is one, it can increase your heart rate and blood pressure because it works through uh, the sympathetic system. And two, if you are sympathetically depleted, your catecholamines are more or less depleted, ICU patients, things like that, it can actually act as a myocardial depressant directly. Um, so you can kind of have these swings one way or the other in a non normal patient. So somebody that has, say, coronary artery disease, possibly, and you give them um, ketamine and their heart rate goes up, that's not a place you want to be. And the really big thing is that it causes these vivid hallucinations, which, you know, postoperatively can be extremely dissatisfying to patients. It can delay discharge, which can delay turnover for cases, which uh, in and of itself has cost issues and and things like that. Some people pay big money for those hallucinations, though. So, <laughs> so some you're just hanging out, you want to talk to dolphins, that's how you do it. Listen, people, everyone has their own thing. <laughs> I don't know, all, all I can think about is uh, being intubated uh, while awake and how traumatizing that would be. So, yeah, you hopefully, I'm really hoping that Rucker signs off and, uh, and I'm good to do this in uh, a week or two because uh, the reality is, if I'm properly topicalized, then I shouldn't feel anything anyway. Huh. Uh, there's already a great YouTube video on it that we're going to, we're going to post to of a, a former attending up in Boston who does it on stage in front of lots of people really? to show that it can be done. Yeah. That's awesome. So our hope is to basically walk through it, walk through the topicalization process, um, how we numb the gag reflex, how we numb the trachea, how we numb, uh, all the parts and then just put the scope in. <laughs> Yeah, just put the scope in. No big deal. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, um, what about pain management? Um, even like after, you know, post-procedure or like long-term, how, how I know anesthesiologists can 100% be involved in chronic pain care and things like that. So um, what's the role of anesthesi anesthesiologists like in that case? Is it, um, do you feel like the training is, is just, does it kind of prep you for that? Or like how, what's the difference between that and versus like someone who does, you know, neurology or what, just a typical primary um pain management doc? Sure. So a lot of um, prime, primary pain management docs, it's one of the fellow, it's actually uh, one of the two most competitive fellowships in, in anesthesia is to go into chronic pain management. Um, and we deal a lot with it. We obviously deal with a lot of narcotics. Um, we deal with a lot of pre and post-operative pain issues, both chronically and um, acutely. Uh, so on the issue of pain management, you know, we're, we're obviously moving into this, this opioid epidemic time and we're always looking for ways around it. Um, very interesting, there's a couple of papers on uh, some of these pre-operative cocktails that patients are getting, um, pregabalin with uh, NSAIDs before going into the operating room and it's decreasing the amount. Uh, lidocaine was actually once used as a pain management drug uh, and uses a drip intraoperatively, ketamine now as well. Uh, like I said, our blocks, a lot of times for patients who are going home can even have a bulb that has local anesthetic in it and they leave a catheter in their leg or wherever it is and it will deliver their, their lidocaine over a certain amount of days hmm. and then they pull it out when they're done and hopefully the pain is, is gone by then. Um, it's definitely a very 
complex issue because it's not binary and it's also it's measurable from a subjective view so i can tell if somebody is a, is asleep or paralyzed because i have very definitive like um equipment that will tell me yes or no um at least for paralysis but for uh, sedation and uh and going to sleep maybe not quite as binary but for somebody to say i'm in 10 out of 10 pain while they're sitting on their cell phone talking can kind of you know what you guys laugh it's it's a lot more common than you no, think. no I, I, I'm sure. I, I believe it they come uh, into our clinic and yep, they're like I, I need this this and you know it's like come on man yeah i mean are you seeing pain management no <laughs> okay well <laughs> <laughs> when i'm in 10 out of 10 pain i can't walk and right. i'm herniated disc and i've and i'm like i everything is the worst um i'm definitely not sitting there using my cell phone right. but i digress uh, there are definitely people who are in 10 out of 10 pain and they've just learned to manage it chronically. Uh, there's a lot of uh, literature on uh, psychotherapy and not necessarily even dealing with the pain for chronic issues, but for learning to deal with it from a emotional and psychological standpoint and how to live with it. Um, there was actually a good summary paper uh, that came out in the New England Journal within this last year about chronic pain management, and we don't have a lot of good things that work for it. Um, Gabapentin is a big drug that we use, but obviously can cause sedation. NSAIDs, uh, we don't want to go too crazy with because obviously the, the GI issues involved. Um, Tylenol, liver toxicity. So the unfortunate thing is that everything has its its pluses and minuses. Everything has its, uh, you know, one way or another. But, you know, we kind of have to decide what we value. Um, you know, can we deal with this little bit of ache that's going on, uh, or do I want the narcotics? You know, because I just had my my knee replaced. And sometimes baseline, some amount of narcotic is is very important. And uh, other times, you know, Tylenol will do the trick. Mm-hmm. How? Um, and this is a question actually, some of my PA students just brought up to me. Um, yep. and so I'm going to get your insight from doing this day to day. If you have to pick between, you know, us, if you are going to use an opioid, you know, how do you kind of, you know, how do you pick between hydromorphone versus, you know, oxycodone? If they're going to, if, especially if it's an outpatient setting, you know, if you're sending someone home, what's your, do you have like a certain way of thinking about it? Or how do you, do you have an algorithm you follow personally? So I actually don't, can't comment on it because, um, aside from the fact that I'm not going into pain management, um, one of the, our clinic is a is a non-opiate pain clinic. Gotcha. So our attendings don't deal with it at all. Uh, so I couldn't answer for going home. But at least in the hospital, it depends on what we're titrating to. Um, if we think that this is going to be somebody who is going to just need it for the day after surgery, we'll give them a PCA with Dilaudid because we know it'll – It'll work for the night or two that they need it. We mm. can total up how much they need, give it to them, and then kind of taper it the same way we would steroids. Uh, other times, some people just need a little bit of fentanyl for a procedure, like you know, uh, to help with joint replacement or um, you know, an IND or something. So, you know, it's dependent at least with the opiates on what you're looking for. Um, same thing with our epidurals. We put opiates in them because they help make uh, you know a denser block. So. It all depends on what we're using it for, and obviously, you guys know uh, it depends on all of that depends on the chemical composition of the drug. Fentanyl, for example, uh, you know, because it's so lipophilic, uh, works very, very quickly, which makes it great. So, 
it also means that if I give a huge bolus dose, which I've done before, and then they're like, oh, we need to cancel the case. I'm like, they're not going to wake up. It's going to work. Because <laughs> it'll just sit there and leak out. So definitely tailor your opiates to, um, and any any real pharmacologic intervention should be tailored exactly to what you want to do. But understanding that no matter what you give, even if it's normal saline uh, or, or um, lactated ringers, it's it's not benign and it always is going to have a plus and minus. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. I like it. We had one of our buddies is a critical care farm D that um, runs the residency program out in Kansas that he said that twice on our podcast. Now he's like flu fluids are, are not just benign things that we get. There's still medication. So I thought oh, that's a hundred percent of medication. That's cool. That you bring that up. A big uh, trial. I think it was called the smart trial from uh, Vanderbilt going over normal saline versus uh, I think it was lactated ringers and just all of the, you know, it's, it's absolutely not benign, just, uh, you know, giving fluid and especially in the operating room, um, liberal fluid management as in just giving people fluid and volume and volume actually has, uh, negative, very negative consequences. And same thing in the ICU patients who are volume overloaded, uh, definitely shown to have, uh, sometimes worse, worse prognosis. Yeah, for sure. Um, so going forward, you know, obviously you got a couple more years of training and stuff like that. What, what do you, what do you see yourself 10 years from now? Like what's your goal for your career? Do you have like, have you, do you, have, are you just kind of like taking things as they come? Are you going to jump in? You know, do you have any plan for like teaching at all? I mean, you seem like, yeah. you, you know, you, you seem very, uh, you know, knowledgeable about your craft. So that's, that's cool. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, um, it's very easy for me to say right now, I, I went straight through school from high school, college to medical school uh, into residency and now into fellowship. So I still feel like a kid um, and I only know school and work at this point. So it's very easy for me to say, yeah, I'm going to finish my fellowship and go straight into academics and teach and do all that stuff. Um, but there is something to be said about the reality of, well, I'm not going to be done fellowship until I'm 32. And then after that, you know, I would like to make some money and I would like to be able to pay off my hundreds of thousands of dollars of student debt. And, you know, I'd like to make enough so I can have a family or, or do other kinds of things. So as of right now, hundred percent academics. Now that's not to say I'm not going to have a child, get married in whatever order it happens. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> something, some, some wrench gets thrown in or not even a wrench, but something that is not necessarily expected where my priorities change uh, as of right now, yes, 100% academics. I want to be a full professor somewhere. I want to have published enough. I want hopefully my, my YouTube channel and some of the content that I make uh, kind of gets out there and I can move on to a more academic scene where I get to teach about medical education, where I get to, you know, teach people kind of what I do and, and uh, generations moving forward. So definitely academics as of right now, but uh, I'm definitely open-minded to whatever the future may uh, may bring. Thank you. So, uh, so you're talking to an undergrad student who has some interest in medical school, maybe anesthesiology. Are you saying, "Yep, go for it 100%. It's worth the time and money commitment. Do med school, whole residency, whole nine yards, everything. Go for it." Or are you kind of hedging a little bit? What What are you telling them? Oh no, I 100%. If If they're considering medicine, there is. I wouldn't give this up for, for anything in the world. Um, nice. There's definitely some issues, you know, obviously we see on the political grand stage of things and, you know, decreased reimbursements at some point and whatever else may or may not happen. You know, I, I can't speak to the politics of, but if I had to get up every day 
and do something that wasn't this, I probably would not be happy. Mm-hmm. That's one. And two, it, forget that I like doing procedures and I like the physiology and pathophysiology and, and getting my hands on, on things. Uh, you know, there's something to be said and it sounds again, cheesy and cliche, but there, there's not a feeling in the world necessarily like having somebody be like, thank you, you know, for saving my life or thank you for making it like I had a baby and I could not have done it. You know, I couldn't have gotten through it without, you know, you or, or somebody else. So even if not anesthesia, if even if you're considering being a nurse or you're going into pharmacy, I mean, I've seen some of the people, some of the pharmacists that I've met and spoken to who basically manage patients, diabetes is an outpatient. They like could not be happier yeah. with every, like their lives are, are completely changed. A hundred percent pursue medicine. If you love anesthesia and I recommend anybody that's listening to this, please feel free to contact me at any point. If you have any ever, ever have any questions, I love what I do, and I kind of feel like it's the last, maybe not the last, because I don't know how much other specialties would like to hear that, but <laughs> it, it feels like it's the last uninhibited practice of medicine where nobody else is there to put IVs in for me. Nobody else is there to to order meds. There's no computer between me and them. I get to kind of do what they did in the 1910s where I am all aspects of this patient's intraoperative medical care, and it's a, it's a unique experience. And to speak to the pharmacology aspect, I I like to hope that I hold myself as well as some of my uh, others to higher standards with our knowing our pharmacology, not not more so than you guys or necessarily anybody else. But in a sense that I push my own drugs, I mix my own bags. I'm there's no epic to say, are you sure you want to give this, you know? And so it means that I have to know how this drug is going to interact with this liver failure patient or that they're going to be able to excrete this even though they are on dialysis um, or how this drug is going to interact with this drug to not cause serotonin syndrome. And so uh, I really do, I like to think pride myself on making sure that I know that, but I, I definitely push for anybody else going into it to make sure that they do as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. That was a t- that was a tangent, but yes, go into medicine, go into anesthesia. <laughs> no, that's awesome, man. And and so, what do you what do you use like for yourself, like to kind of stay, um, other than the actual up to date? Um, what do you use f- to keep yourself up to date with the new literature that's coming out, new studies, things like that? Do you have like go tos or multiple things you use? So the um, I read what's called Baby Miller's, which is like the intro textbook for all of us for anesthesia, and then I've made my way through a book called Barish, which is like our big textbook. That and Big Miller's is our Bible. Um, and I've made my way through that once, taken my notes. But as far as keeping up to date, um, I have a couple of journals, anesthesiology, which comes to me, um, monitor, which comes to me. And then I actually keep up with the New England Journal every week. Uh, I thought originally um, when I first signed up that I wouldn't be able to. But the reality is most of the articles don't necessarily apply to me. Um, you know, at least in the New England Journal, there'll be like something about a new chemo drug. And I'm like, as interesting as it might be, I, it doesn't apply to me this week. Um, I also started reading Chest recently um, because we get it through our, our portals. Uh, but I keep up with the magazines. And I at this point, it's kind of like when you were in college and you already knew what you wanted to do or you already got into grad school and you're kind of, I don't want to say I'm senioritis, but as interesting as some of the OB anesthesia might be, I think having a, a good foundation is excellent for me now, but I don't predict in my future to be practicing it very much, if at all, because I hope to mostly be doing hearts and ICU. But 
magazines. So that allows me to kind of, kind of pick and choose what I read about in, uh, in the magazines that do come or in the, in the journals rather. Yeah. Cool. Narrow your focus. Um, so you mentioned, uh, your YouTube channel, um, and uh, you know, we, we started talking over, uh, Instagram, um, which you have the, the Instagram handle count backwards by 10, right? Um, that uh, which count backwards from 10, yeah, from 10. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. So that's probably the greatest, uh, handle for anybody who's an anesthesiologist. <laughs> I read that. I was like, hmm, great freaking name. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I, no, um, it's, it's the traditional, what you say to patients when they go to sleep and, mm-hmm. you know, we'll tell you how far you got when you wake up. And that's fine. You know, I told, what, I, I was with our uh, behavioral health team today. I was working with one of our psychiatrists in the clinic and, um, I was telling him, I was like, yeah, I got to roll out of here around five. Cause I got to make sure I, I got to, you know, doing a podcast with the anesthesiologist guy I met. And, um, I was like, listen to this name he's got. I was like, count backwards from 10. And he's like, great freaking name. <laughs> <laughs> it was also a play on the fact that all the video lectures are only 10 minutes. Oh, right? They're nice. no more than 10 minutes. Very cool. Um, I assume we're all about the same generation. 19, yeah. I was, you know, 1990, um, 88, I can't can't sit and watch things for 30 minutes at a time. Uh, maybe it's a generational issue. Maybe it's just something that now that we have videos for everything, Mm -hmm. but 10 minutes and I I need a break or I need to, uh, you know, read something else or do something else. So, so what made you kind of go, you know, that route as far as obviously you like to educate, so that's cool. And, and how, um, and people are like, oh, my God, he's bringing up social media again. That's fine. Um, but what made you kind of go that route? And like, what made you start like doing the educational piece on YouTube, Instagram, those kind of things? Sure. So um, there's a pathology, uh, pathophysiology uh, lecturer. His name is Dr. Uh, Hussein Sitar out at the University of Chicago, who came out with this basically book and video series called Pathoma. Um and he does these very basic drawings with these very, you know, detailed outlines of what he's explaining. But uh, I found that when things were hand-drawn for me and in very simple, simple uh, explanations, even someone as, as, you know, sometimes dumb as I can be, it, it made it very simple. And what I found was there were a lot of topics in far physiology, especially, and pathophysiology that... I struggled with that I needed to find better ways to have myself understand it. And then I was kind of thinking that if I have trouble with this, I imagine lots of other people do. And so I started surfing the internet to try and find places and Khan Academy is phenomenal. And a lot of those educators the same way, their videos tend to be a little bit longer and sometimes more comprehensive. And I noticed that there really was nothing like this necessarily for anesthesia. Um, there are definitely some great uh, board review materials. There's some amazing uh, – University of Kentucky has a YouTube series out, but it's primarily through um, uh, slides on PowerPoint, extremely comprehensive. But sometimes there was – you know, I, I can read and memorize that, and that's not necessarily a big deal. But there are topics in physiology that – uh, sometimes we're uh, even in with like volatiles, pharmacologic stuff that I could read, but I, I would need to see somebody explain it and draw it. And so I kind of have taken some of those concepts and try to bring them to light in basic, you know, rudimentary doodles uh, on, on, on the internet. Even one thing like uh, I ask students a lot, well, all right, let's talk about how we breathe. How do we mechanically take a breath? And the reason it's important to understand is because when you put a patient on a ventilator, everything switches, everything reverses, and it can have detrimental effects for, say, a septic shock patient that now you drop their venous return. And I always get the same answer. Well, we create negative pressure. All right. 
go on. Yeah. Now what? Tell me that now. Explain that. How does it end? Not all the time, but a lot of times I get kind of this either blank stare or things from because it's been at least to me, I didn't learn it in a way that was conducive. And so I've noticed that maybe other people are I'm trying to fill that that gap sometimes that that people have. Because yeah. I know there were questions that I had, you know, going through. Understanding there's that that deeper level understanding the why behind stuff. Um, one of the, one of the first quick diabetes management is kind of like my you know forte, and um, when I have fourth year students on rotation with me, I'll always be like, I'll, one of the questions I always ask them is, okay, what's insulin do? And they'll say, well, low blood sugar. Cool. <laughs> How does it do that? <laughs> and then so even something so simple like that, like they've never actually thought past that process of it lowers the blood and thinking about the actual physiology that's happening. Where is it binding? Sure. Why does it doing? What happens if you lower it? Um, you know all that thing, and it's 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 like kind of I use that as a tool to kind of get them to start thinking in terms of like why like why does yep. this stuff happen not just blanket memorization but the why and the mechanism so that's cool I think, I think it's important on two levels one because it means that when you're troubleshooting something it means that you're not set to this very limited box algorithm to well what do I do about this uh, because it means that you can think critically and say all right well how can I MacGyver this or what's a, a way around this um, and the other reason is that when something very dramatic is happening, when there is something that's hyper acute, if you really understand the pathology, the physiology, the pathophysiology, it means that you can make the correct decision or the correct call um, in that sense. Because some problems are going to be very basic. Patients fluid overloaded, they just need to be diuresed. But sometimes it's not going to be that simple. And if you don't have a very if you don't have that good foundation, you could do something that could be possibly very harmful or just not not correct because, you know, you don't really know necessarily why you're doing it or or, or what could happen as a result. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, you know, for students or anybody listening, how where can they find you on social media? What platforms are you on? Oh, nice. So I'm um, really only on uh, YouTube and Instagram. My Instagram handle is at count backwards from 10, all one word. Um and the YouTube channel is just count backwards from 10 uh, with normal spaces and everything. And, you know, I, I take requests for certain videos. Um, I'm trying to make a short pharmacology series where we just kind of go over the basics. Uh, I've noticed that uh, there's a lot of drugs used in the operating room, like our paralytics that I'd never even heard about during medical school because it's not a beta blocker. It's not a calcium channel blocker. It's not a, you know, a diabetes medication. And so this was a good way uh, to explain kind of the high yield points, how they work, you know, all that kind of stuff for practitioners in a very limited amount of time. Um, so I've had a lot of fun with it. So you can find me at either one of those places and uh, through there, through the website at www.countbackwardsfrom10.com, 10 being the number 10, always not, not spelled out. And you can always email me through there too. Um, I'm still a very small fish in a very large pond. So I'm very happy to kind of answer and get back to anybody that's willing to talk to me. Yeah, we, we, we all are. <laughs> so it's all good. No, that's cool, man. Um, and, uh, so when you, when's the anesthesiology podcast happening? Huh? <laughs> oh my God. Uh, so there's a great anesthesia podcast. It's called ACRAC. Um, I can't ACC RACC. It's by the program director of Johns Hopkins. Hmm. Uh, he is, Amazing. So he's a critical care uh, ICU doctor from Johns Hopkins and anesthesiologist. He brings guests on all the time. He's he's uh, 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 Jed. Uh, let me 
I don't want to butcher his name. It's ACCRAC, and it is by Dr. Jed Walpaw, uh, and really, really, absolutely brilliant guy uh, to listen to. I'm, I'm not nearly on that level, uh, but I hope one day to kind of participate over there. That's Who cool, knows? man. Uh, well, I'm, I'm sure uh, you'll get his attention doing the social media stuff and things like that. Um, you'd be surprised how, uh, how how long have you been doing like the Instagram thing? Uh, eight weeks. Oh, oh so nice. You already got 4,000 followers in eight weeks? Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, it's, it's from the help from you and a lot of other people who uh, we've kind of reached out to uh, trying to get stuff out about this. Uh, that's I'm cool, secretly man. hoping that if I can get that self-intubation video on on YouTube and it can go viral, mm-hmm. then... Maybe we'll, maybe we'll we'll go off from there, but who knows? No, nah, man, you, you'd be stunned at like some of the opportunities this stuff can bring. That's why I always push it. Like I always talk about this kind of stuff on the podcast or my students or whatever. I'm like, there's been there's been a couple times where I've been at conferences, like giving you know giving a talk, or whatever, and I'm like looking around at the people speaking, and I'm like, what the heck am I doing here? Like, <laughs> and like they got my I, name. I've said st- about you. You've yeah. written a text. I don't know why we're on the same place. <laughs> yeah, I'm almost. I'm not going on stage now because I feel stupid. <laughs> like, yeah, autographs while he's up there. No, uh, trust me. I would. I would love to be invited to lectures somewhere one day. You know, I'd love to be. But uh, you know, all in time. Uh, yeah, no, I'm sure it's coming, man. Yeah, I think Mike planned on making a viral video with a uh, spicy chip at one point. Wasn't that what that was? Dude, I missed the. So I missed it though because you remember when that stupid thing happened? Like it was everybody was eating those like one chip, like those uh, ghost pepper chips, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Shaq did it. So I had a thought as that happened, it was like kind of fading out. I was like, where, where was I? Like trying to give a PPI talk um, about like you know acid reflux and stuff while eating one of those chips, and like I thought that'd be <laughs> I thought that would be funny. And by the time I came up with it, it was kind of like already past its thing. He's gone. So I was like, nah, next time, next time around, I won't be so, I won't be so hesitant. So yeah, that would have been funny. Oh, that's great. Oh, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I'm sure that something, some other stupid challenge will happen in like another week or so. We'll do that one. Oh my God. So is not another Tide Pod challenge. Yeah. I was about to say, we're not doing anything with Tide Pods. Yeah. No. No, that's cool, man. Well, we'll definitely link your stuff up and uh, try to send more, uh, get more eyes on you because you know you're doing some awesome things. So, and I appreciate you. I know how busy you are, so I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to us today. I can't listen. I can't thank you guys enough, not just for the exposure, but for sitting and talking with me a little bit and helping me kind of get the uh, the anesthesia message out there. Um, for anybody out there, please feel free to get in touch with me and th- thank the both of you guys so so much. Sure, yeah, man. No, absolutely. Fun. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Um, if you have any questions at all, our emails um, are in the show notes. Also, you know, you can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, you know, if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or you can make fun of us, it's fine. Um, if you do like the podcast, uh, make sure you subscribe and, um, you know, make sure you uh, leave a comment if you want to. Um, also, we have a new texting platform available. So text me, text us at 415-943-6116. You'll get an automated response asking you to kind of join our phone book. And then when we send out some exclusive content via that platform, you'll get a text from me. And anything after the automated stuff will all be actually me texting you. So um, it's a cool thing. I've been able to interact with some students. And we also answer pharmacotherapy questions, things like that, like kind of in real time. So it's a little quicker than sending us an email. But something you're interested in, send a text to that number. Again, I'll have the number in the show notes. Um, and thank you guys so much for listening. Later. Thank <laughs> you.